climate literacy, new jobs, managing your mental health. We are focused on what you need to learn about all those topics in another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I'm your host, Brendan Howard, and today we start with climate literacy. What does it look like for security professionals and why do you need to worry about it? Stephen Cremando with the consultancy Behavioral Science Applications explains what knowledge and skills you need. And since you're already learning about climate, why not learn about management too? Matt Bradley, Senior VP of Risk Solutions at the security services company Crisis24, says what made you great as a security professional may not be quite enough to rise in the business and leadership ranks. And finally, chasing a topic on everyone's mind with mass shootings, we talked to Catherine Schweit, an author and former executive with the FBI who worked there in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook school shooting. She talks about her training experience in the FBI, how it prepares people for horrific events, and how corporate security professionals may need to think about whether they've got the training, put in the reps that they need before and after events to handle not just security and their physical health, but their mental health after. So that's a lot. First, Stephen Cremando on climate literacy. What exactly does that look like for security professionals and why do we need it? Climate literate starts with the idea of understanding the concepts of global warming and concept change, why they're happening, what their effects would be on uh, the planet, on human physical health, on human behavioral health, and then by extension, on the security landscape in terms for behavioral changes that would be of concern to, to a security professional. But it starts with knowing the, the very basics about what climate change is and why it's happening. The topic of climate change seems huge. And so I want, is there a concrete, could you give a concrete example how those emerging client issues on the geopolitical landscape globally, how they might affect an individual security professional's decisions about how they manage their time, their energy, their resources? Sure. So climate is, of course, a vast, vast topic. If we drill down to maybe one very, very narrow silo, um, we could take for some uh, something, for example, like uh, the effects of warming on sea level rise. If we're talking about a client that is perhaps a multinational organization that has facilities and personnel working in coastal communities in the country or around the world. Over time, as climate, uh, as sea level rise continues, there's the potential for displacement of uh, locations and, and people who are living in those areas. From a security standpoint, that represents challenges in terms of physical security and the, the actual site or location of their their facilities. It probably represents challenges on the behavioral side in terms of people being displaced, uh, the level of stress, of grief that causes them. And then the knock-on effects of that is how does that affect issues in the workplace around security, performance, morale, uh, anger at the organization, anger at coworkers and such. So in any one domain of climate change, which as you said is vast, 
there are ways that both the physical environment and the psychological landscape are potentially subject to being, you know, very significantly altered. You have a lot of experience, um, a, a degree in psychology. So thinking about, as you mentioned, people's changing emotional state. So grief and stress that comes with being pushed out of place, uh, things, heat can do things to people. What are the major climate change things that might affect people's day-to-day psychology and functioning that security professionals, knowing about climate change, maybe going in more depth, knowing about climate change might help them adjust to understanding how people are reacting in any given moment? Yeah, so to your point, uh, heat is probably one of the largest ones. Heat, we know in a very very, uh, simple way, can affect people who are functioning well in terms of disturbing their sleep which has a trickle-on effect of uh, disrupting attention, concentration, performance, uh, mood, and such. So if we talk about something very simple like cybersecurity, the possibility of someone being, you know, not sleeping well during a heat wave, uh, their home doesn't cool off, their community doesn't cool off, they're not sleeping deeply, getting the right sort of sleep, the ability to, or possibility of them missing a cyber clue like a... uh, you know, an attachment, a kind of rogue email address, clicking and opening a link that they shouldn't, can have a very, very direct cyber implication. On the other side of that, we also know that heat can increase hostility. And one of the ways it increases hostility is it actually compromises people's ability to read and respond to what they perceive to be hostile cues from other people. So someone who says something fairly innocuous to you in the workplace or in a grocery store line, uh, people can take the wrong way, perceive as being threatening, overreact, and that ends up really becoming more of a, of a confrontation. So the effects of heat are very significant. And by extension, one of them is if someone does have a pre-existing underlying mental health condition, which is now one out of four Americans in the United States, uh, there's a very good chance that heat exacerbates that and actually makes that person potentially more symptomatic, uh, which is obviously difficult in their everyday functioning and difficult for uh, folks in the workplace. A major frustration about managing climate change, at least for me as an individual, maybe for, and I'm sure for security professionals as well, is a lot of what you're talking about is reactive. So things are getting hotter, so we're going to have to react to that. The sea level's rising, and that's going to affect displacement in a place where I have my site. I have to react to that. Are there elements of looking at climate change, if you became climate literate, Are there any ways you could see that security professionals could be proactive about adjusting to things coming rather than thinking, I'm going to know why they're happening, but I can't fix the cause. I'm just going to have to deal with the effects. Is there any proactive work people can do by being climate literate? Yeah. In fact, the the whole discussion around climate today is not really about, you know, prevention. Uh, Where we are in terms of the trajectory of warming you know, this is literally the the idea of turning around a battleship. It would take decades, if not centuries, to undo the current trajectory of warming. So the language today is primarily on mitigation and adaptation. It is no longer about uh, acceptance or denial or disbelief or, you know, any one of our individual efforts. Now, this is not to say that there are not things that you and I could be doing in terms of our daily life, you know, how we recycle, we use our vehicles, things like that, that are helpful. It's not to say there aren't things that large businesses and manufacturers can't and shouldn't be doing that would also be helpful because really every increment uh, and even, you know, fraction of a degree in temperature rise 
does have its other, you know, knock-on effects. So it's fantastic to do those. But mitigation and adaptation really says, how do we start looking at the two-year, five-year, 10-year plan for our geography? Uh, what do we anticipate or working with our local emergency managers or state and our, our other partners to think about what flooding looks like in our area to think what heat what might look like in terms of uh, drought and other other you know consequences like that how do we get ahead of it because there are things we may be thinking about uh, shifting some functions different work from home strategies and different scenarios there's a range of different things that folks should do but to your point probably the the least tenable option is to wait see and react to it because you will be, you know, any any individual and community will be so far behind the curve, uh, the curve, and then there's the potential of increased competition. Uh, that if you aren't looking to the future, should we do something different at this location? Should we move? Should we close? Should we change our workforce in some way? Many organizations will be scrambling when the impact uh, truly reaches a, a certain ju- you know jurisdiction or location. And then it becomes that much more difficult. So this is really to begins with your initial question about climate literacy. Uh, do people understand what this means? Do they understand what it means to them personally, their family, their community? Do they understand what it means to their organization and their business? And then you can actually move into that discussion of adaptation and mitigation. Um, adaptation is something like, does this building go on stilts now to accommodate sea level rise? And mitigation, you know, in the same way, uh, how do we reduce the likelihood of of being impacted so badly or the uh, severity of its impact? So lots of good thinking can be done, but it needs to start happening pretty much right away if it hasn't already. A lot of these things feel like um, the normal course of business. So thinking about people's emotions, thinking about what's happening to the buildings. One thing that sparks out of climate change, and I guess this this sort of ebbs and flows with the years, I've watched it, is talking about eco-terrorism. So terrorists who are specifically focused on fomenting, you know, pushing hard to try to foment extreme change because they don't see the incremental change happening as enough. Would you talk a little bit about what you're seeing now or what you maybe are anticipating as things get worse from in the issue of eco-terrorism? Okay, so the way we think about eco-terrorism really is kind of, a, um, I guess, a two-prong uh, discussion. When most people think about eco-terrorism, historically what we think about are environmental activists. And environmental activists are still very, very present in our landscape. Uh, we are today, uh, you know, just had a national release of a movie, a very uh, well-publicized movie, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Uh, this is, again, based on the book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's just coming out in theaters around the country. And it's got this kind of what we typically would refer to as a politically left-leaning sort of, of ideology, which is we need to stop uh, the companies who are polluting, the logging companies, the companies who are destroying the land, et cetera, damaging animal life. Those are kind of um, thought of, as I said, kind of left-leaning ideologies associated with protecting the land. They have, over time, uh, become more aggressive and in some ways probably more dangerous. And most recently, we had the shooting incident in Cop City, uh, the the police facility going up outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which were really, really kind of very aggressive clashes between these kind of eco-activists and police. So this is becoming a more dynamic and probably more threatening environment as eco-environmentalists start to feel that 
the climate crisis is getting closer at hand. There's going to be more damaging. It's going to be more irreversible. And governments, of course, and corporations are not doing enough from their perspective. But the other side of this equation, uh, which doesn't get as much discussion yet, is the idea of ecofascism. And this we see is kind of aligned more with a right-leaning political ideology. And it actually is a crossover between environmental or eco sorts of uh, concepts and white supremacy. And the ideas essentially are that it's not about protecting the land per se. It's about using, if necessary, you know, extreme means, including violence, to drive out migrants uh, who may be competing with the people who rightfully belong in a, a neighborhood, in a, a state or a country, competing for the scarce resources that are left there, whether they're food, their water, their housing, their job security or such, how we prevent overpopulation. And so from an eco fascist standpoint, they also look at populations, very often migrant populations who they believe are overpopulating. And here we have the potential for violence in the terms of either the xenophobic and anti-immigrant violence that can rise to the level of things like civil unrest as well in pushing back against migration primarily. So you have an eco-terrorist threat or eco-extremist threat that now is kind of bifurcated uh, where it's no longer just environmental extremists. It's actually people from two different, just very different ideologies who are thinking that violence at some point may be necessary to advance or defend their beliefs. And so we're seeing this actually growing along both of those parallel tracks. They're both motivated by climate change, but motivated for very different reasons and have a very different vision about what ought to be done uh, to either correct or stop or prepare for the impact of climate change. You can start to feel like it's a lot coming at you from all sides in security when it comes to climate. The left, the right, the heat, the weather, the oceans. But Stephen is pushing for more knowledge, not burying heads in sand. Now, I'd forgive you for burying your head in the sand when you think about the move from highly skilled security professional to, say, chief security officer. But the CSO Center Content Committee at ASIS, with Matt Bradley as spokesperson here, has been figuring out how to organize the big five topics of what you need to know to become a CSO. And they've turned that into a visual, a pyramid. So here, Matt talks us through what the major topics of education are and lets us know, hey, you can get all this stuff from ASIS. Yeah, the five topics starting at the top of the pyramid and going down is called future proofing. Second one is called strategy. The third is risk management. The fourth is analyzing the business. And the fifth is leadership and management. And we chose this amongst a group of other CSOs and other senior security people by talking about the categories of how we would break down the tasks that a chief security officer would execute in their, in their daily job. Uh, and that's how we came up with those categories. So future-proofing up at the top, kind of the pinnacle of the pyramid, and then the base down there with leadership, with the order of importance. I know there's a meaning to the order of importance in the pyramid. How did you settle on that? What does it mean about from the base all the way to the top? 
it's not importance, but how we thought a CSO might uh, spend most of their time. So again, you think of a, a CSO as a kind of a senior executive within an organization. Uh, they're going to be managing a team. So we thought this leadership and management uh uh, layer is where they're going to spend most of their time, right? They're not really going to be doing it, but they're going to be people who are managing those who are doing it. So that's why it's the base of the pyramid, because that from a prioritization standpoint, that's where you're going to spend most of your time, right? Analyzing the business was something you would do as a new CSO, right? You would come in to try to understand how your business works, how it makes money, how it contributes to other parts, you know, how different parts of the business contribute to each other. How does the security function contribute to the business? You do that at the beginning and then you adjust that over time. So you're going to spend a whole lot of time on that at the beginning. And then based on the results of that is kind of how you're going to build out your security program so that you can further enable that. That's the way we look at that one. And then risk management I mean, we could have called this a bunch of different things, but risk management was really more about the idea of what is it the security department is supposed to do, right? You know, these are the things that you're going to do on a day-to-day basis. We want to do travel risk management. We want to do executive protection. We want to make sure we've got, you know, physical security for our buildings, for our employees. Um, You know, we're looking at loan workers. Those type of things are are all part of risk management and and kind of the 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 day to day. Yeah. Um, And then the strategy piece of it, again, a little bit less time. And maybe you're thinking, you know, higher order of events going up the pyramid at at the next to the last layer. The strategy piece, super important at the beginning. Right. So you come in, you do this analysis of the business, you see what resources are available, you figure out what it is strategically you want to do with the department, how you can contribute to creating value in your organization. And then you develop the strategy and the strategy is what drives your request for resources and your implementation of different programs. So it's really important at the beginning. And then obviously it, it shouldn't change significantly over time unless the business changes. But you want to obviously keep adjusting that, reviewing it annually. So that's why a little bit less time. And then future proofing is kind of looking out there and saying, well, no matter how well we're doing today and how well we think we're going to do going forward, we always want to make sure we're looking a few years out so that we keep track of what is security going to look like a few years from now? Whether that is threat analysis, we need to understand how insider threat or cybersecurity might affect our business five years from now. Uh, but we also want to look at uh, tools or capabilities that we might want to add to our program that are, you know, maybe today their uh, beginning technology could be robots, right? We've heard a lot about robots. We've heard a lot about the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and heard a lot about um, even these these hybrid guards, you know, replacing cameras w- or guards with cameras uh, that have smarts in them so they can some, do some things that guards used to do. So all of that idea of let me leverage technology to make myself more efficient so I can be more productive and generate more value. Um, but also let me stay up with what is happening on the threat side so that we put our mitigation measures in place before we get attacked. So I feel like a lot of times when people build these visuals, it's interesting. I thought you were going to say, hey, no, we envisioned the ideal chief security officer and said, this is how they should organize their time. But it sounds like it was a bit like, how do we see CSOs today organizing their time? And the pyramid should reflect that. So do you see it more as a future looking thing or as a no, this is kind of how things are organized for the everyday CSO? 
I think it's it's a little bit of both. So we built the pyramid for aspiring CSOs. Okay. Right. So as you're you're a senior security professional looking to get that next job, maybe you're a deputy CSO, maybe you are a CSO, but nobody ever told you what you should be doing as a CSO. <laughs> and so you're relatively new and you haven't figured it out yet. That's kind of what we built the pyramid for. We built it for this idea that you could look at this and say, where should I be spending most of my time? And where are the resources? that can help me develop myself in these areas. Because honestly, as security professionals, we usually specialize in the areas maybe around risk management, right? The physical security piece. Oh, I'm an executive protection guy, or oh, I'm a physical security, or I'm a security technology person, uh, or I manage the GSOC, right? We have a very specialist mentality within security that maybe didn't lead to a lot of leadership and management, didn't give us the tools we needed to be able to analyze the wider business concept, so that's what we built the pyramid for. I, th- I think it is something that says, if you're you know, a, a successful CSO, you're probably already doing all of these things and devoting the requisite amounts of time to it. If you're not sure you're successful or you wish you were more successful, you could take a look at this as a structure. And if you're an aspiring or new CSO, it can certainly give you an idea of how you might want to spend your time. You know, there's always, I feel like in the business world, uh, the stuff that gets the flash and snaz and everybody's attention is always future, future, future. You can see that now we're talking about AI and technology. So it was interesting to see the future proofing. I feel like if you looked out in the world, you'd think, if I want to become an executive and move up through the ranks, I need to be a visionary. I need to think about the future all the time. I need to be proactive, not reactive. It is important. It's up at the pinnacle of the pyramid, but it's like, that's probably the least of all the tasks you're doing. Do you feel that the people feel pressure to focus on future-proofing as CSOs and future CSOs? Without a doubt, they feel pressure. Okay. But the truth is you are a fireman first, right? You're putting out the fires before you're figuring out, you know, what you're going to do, you know, two or three years down the road. And, and you know, I, I used to call it the, the security director's, you know, hierarchy of needs, right? You're like, fires today disasters that are on the way, things that could happen, you know, most likely to happen in the future, and then things that who knows if they might ever happen, right? Or, you know, being preventative and proactive, that's kind of your hierarchy of needs. And so you really do spend most of your time managing the day-to-day. Everybody does, right? I, I think this pyramid could be adapted to probably any profession that's out there. Um, especially when you're talking about a senior leadership, you might swap out risk management for whatever your, you know, finance or, you know, operations or sales, whatever your your uh, function is, you could swap out that middle layer of the pyramid, but everything else would apply to any senior executive, I think, in any position. So the goal is always to get preventative and proactive right? For every program. But the truth is, if you're not doing the basics on the reactive, you're not going to be around long enough to be preventative and proactive. So so no, no companies want people who can only think of things way out in the future, but not able to deliver in the here and now. Can I ask the other cool thing about the pyramid is you, as you mentioned, hey, this we want this, we want this to be a visual that hooks you up to resources. And I'm wondering if you thought of any concrete examples or the folks who worked on this pyramid, concrete examples of how kind of book learning or live education, CE study really can help in the different areas. And you could focus on anywhere on the pyramid, but yeah, we've got a ton of uh, resources. This is exactly what we did, right? I'm coming from the content committee. So we said to ourselves as a content committee, 
what type of content should we be providing for ASIS and CSO Center members? And we said, well, we'd like to organize it in some certain way instead of just saying, you know, let's be security professionals and, you know, everything on ASIS is, you know, (laughs) acutely, uh, you know, prioritized for for a CSO. We said, let's try to, to boil it down. Right. It's an ocean of content. Let's try to boil it down to those few grains that are, are most important for a CSO. And then we said, OK, and then but how would we organize it? Right. And we thought about this idea of the pyramid so that we could say, you know, you want to know why you're studying what you're studying. Right. When I'm, I'm looking at a piece of content, is this helping to develop me as a leader and a manager or is this helping teach me how to analyze the business? And so when you look at the resource library, it's organized against the layers of the con of, of the pyramid so that you know what skill you're developing. Not at a CSO level yet? Learn more about these and other career resources in the ASIS Career HQ at asisonline.org forward slash professional hyphen development forward slash career hyphen HQ. And now for a wider audience, Everyone will want to hear Catherine Schweitz's thoughts on preparing for and coping with horrific events like mass shootings. Catherine literally wrote books on it. First, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, which is in its second edition, and How to Talk About Guns with Anyone, which is coming this month. She worked with the FBI after the Sandy Hook shooting, where a 20-year-old shot and killed 26 children and adults at an elementary school. So how do professionals prepare, and how is the preparation different and the expectations different for law enforcement and security professionals in these situations? Let's start with Catherine telling us about the kind of training and visualization training she got in the FBI to approach active shooter situations. When you first go as a, as a baby officer, a baby agent, you know, when you first walk to a scene and you pull a gun out, it's very surreal, right? You go, oh, can we, we're going to go do this hit or we're going to go do that. And I, I mean, I realized that I can, I can remember, I can visualize right now, the first time I walked up a stairway with a gun out. And I hadn't been in the in the FBI that long, and I remember uh, thinking, "You just did this at the academy. You just did this at the academy." So it's really about, you know, it is training. is simple to say, "Oh, we should train," but it's not the training; it's the doing. So a lot of times, I think people confuse training for doing, and I think particularly, I work with um, corporate clients. I say. This is the difference between me giving you a PowerPoint lecture and talking, which has its own value, um, and me coming and looking at your policies and procedures, and me walking you through a tabletop exercise or something that I I really think is one of the the type of most valuable training that I do with my clients is physically walking them through a space. When you walk through a space, that's the most important thing you can do because – when I was carrying a gun up a stairway looking for this mass killer who, you know, could at any moment jump out of a doorway, I was there with more talented, you know, more experienced agents and officers. And I knew 
in my pocket. How do I have the confidence to do that? I knew that I had walked those steps before. I had walked steps before. And so I think that's part of it is it's the visualizing, how would I climb out of the car? And then how would I pull my gun out? Where would I point my gun as I'm walking? How could I run with it if I needed to? And and how can I get up these steps? And when do my eyes move? When you're clearing, when you're going upstairs, the most important thing is where you're looking at that moment. You have to be able to see before they see you. So you have to be looking up but and around and up and around and up and around because you have to you don't want somebody to come around, you know, from behind you, above you in a stairway. And so that's really the visualization aspect of it that over and over again was reinforced when I was at the FBI Academy down at Quantico that really helped me in the field to immediately have the confidence. And that confidence is what reduces your stress. And reducing your stress is what helps you deal with the, with the mental health issues of, of, of every day life when you're working in for, as a first responder. We're doing this interview right on top of two kind of different things the public has presented with that were responses to mass shootings by local law enforcement. So, and they were filmed. So one local law enforcement, in your talking about this visualization, the visualization pre into what is probably one of the more horrific situations you can walk into, which is a building uh, where children have been shot. And then the post. So the pre going in and the post, how important is that pre for people who are going to be shoved into that very difficult traumatic situation and then deal with it after? Yeah. And I think that's a good, that's a good um, question because it also distinguishes, you know, a lot of times when we talk about training um, civilians, you know, training businesses, there's there's discussions about, okay, we're going to do, you know, for for lack of, uh, for brevity here, say, we'll say run, hide, fight training. For law enforcement, it's different, right? And for, but for public, we don't want to turn them into a hysterical situation when we train run, hide, fight. We want them to just learn patterns like we do. It's a fire drill. Make sure that you get out of the building safely. Hey, it's a potential shooter. Make sure that you lock down or you get out of the building safely. And you want calm. The training to is be calm. Yeah. The training is calm. That's what you govern. In law enforcement, you want to train a little bit to the hysteria because you don't want it to be the first time they're in the hysteria, right? So you train uh, officers, you train agents to to run and, and you know, jump through uh, a car before you try to shoot your handgun. Uh, you know, the, that's the fun time at the FBI Academy. You're down at Quantico and they're you know, and they're saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. Here's the scenario: start from running here, and then run over there, and climb through the car, and then jump through that window, and then we want you to try to hit one of those. One of those is going to be a bad guy. Find out which one it is, and it's great because the bad guys as a piece of metal or paper, either way, so you're never going to do any harm, right? But it gets your adrenaline going, and it's that training that that helps to reinforce the fact that you can." hit the right target and make a good decision, even though you might have your heart rate, you know, going and in running through training or having to rapid fire, things like that, it helps to calm you down. And then when you get on the scene, you do it again. It's no different than, you know, uh, FBI agents qualify at least four times a year with their handgun. Every time you go out there, you're shooting again and again and again and again. It's repetition. Repetition keeps you just calm. You just do it by rote you know, practice. And really, mental health care with regard to a response is the same. If you if you train to have to run to the scene, if you train like you like you play, as they say, that's good. Because when you 
can't, I think we had those situations and I think it's really great that um, law enforcement knows what happens at the scenes. It's great that the public can see now that law enforcement has to make decisions between horrible and more horrible. And they do it very bravely. And sometimes, you know, they they can be second guessed and sometimes they don't do exactly as they're trained. You know, that's that fear factor sometimes that might come in and stop somebody from moving forward on what they're actually trained to do. I think that's the the difference when we talk about the types of training um, and the response that we've seen in the, in the last few months over um, different kinds of shootings is the body camera is showing us where an officer is responding and they're reacting just as exactly as their training has given them the confidence to do. And I would, uh, I will just add that I think that when you don't do what you know you're trained to do, you, you're going to have a much a much tougher time from a mental health standpoint recovering from that. Much more money spent to help people preparing military and federal agents. As you said, this training you got at Quantico, this training you got in the FBI, maybe is not the same typical training that city and county law enforcement. And then along the spectrum, corporate security professionals get when they wind up in these situations, maybe it feels more black and white. You know what your training is because you've repeated it. Where does the problem happen for people who are in private security and in corporate security? Where is the line? What am I responsible to do? And then how much do I need to go and help people? And how much am I just supposed to observe and lock things down? I feel like they're caught in this gray area. And that, as you said, if you know what to do and you do it, maybe you'll have a better mental health recovery on the back end. If you don't know what to do or you don't do what you've been trained to do, it's worse on the back end. When you talk to corporate people, where are they trapped in this spectrum? Oh, that's a great question because I'll tell you where, I'll tell you spot on where they, I, I have this conversation all the time, um, specifically on this point. I'm going to teach my people, I see this in schools too, uh, to principals who will say, at school, security officials at companies, how do I teach my people to help the other people in the business when an emergency happens. And I think it depends on the emergency, right? That's the thing that you have to discern is that when a shooting is occurring, which of course, as a mass shooting expert, you know, I'm all about that, right? But as a mass shooting expert, shootings are different and no one is uh, responsible for anybody else's life in a shooting. Everybody needs to be taught you run to save your life. You will not have time to give direction to other people. We, the best that we, as we always say in any situation, get yourself to safety, take those with you who are around you, who are willing to go, but go to safety, you know, and even for law enforcement, we train that, you know, you can't save others if you can't save yourself. You have to make sure that you're, you know, that you're, you're thinking about your own safety too. But in a corporate setting, if you are in a shooting situation, security should be training everybody to flee. Everybody should be trained to escape. If they can't escape, then they should follow the kind of the run, hide, fight protocol of, of um, locking down. But escaping the area is not does not mean take anybody with you. It does not mean uh, standing in the hallway to direct people to where the exits are. And in companies, I hear that a lot. Um, they say, well, our security people are going to be stationed at, and my answer to that is no one's going to be stationed anywhere. Um, we know too much about shooting situations to ever give anybody advice that they should ask permission to leave their queue. I see that. I had a security chief who asked me once, a security guard who asked me once, 
he's always required to call his boss who's offsite before he leaves his desk. I said, well, no. You know, you have to think, this is what about, this is a visualization. Talk them through it and say everybody in your front desk should know they're, they have permission to leave. The other thing that I would say is that companies oftentimes don't empower their security people. Security people don't empower the employees that they advise to make a decision on their own. And in an emergency situation, whether it's a hurricane, tornado, or a shooting, everybody has to make the situation dependent on the information they have in front of them at the time. Nothing in security can rely on, let me call and check and see the status of. All the information you have is probably going to be bad. You're checking your your text messages to see if something is is there. It's not. And if it is, it might be inaccurate. You just need to save yourself. Okay. Now I'm going to jam you up at the end here because I want to ask. So you, we've covered kind of the security and safety thinking about these situations pre and uh-huh. during. What about the mental health is probably not happening enough in the private sector when it comes to security folks who are facing what are traumatic situations the prevention stuff that doesn't happen, that there's not the money and the time for, or they don't know how to do it, and then the post stuff. I'm sure everybody gives everybody access to an EAP, but beyond that, for security people who are in the middle of a violent thing and employees are in the middle of a violent thing, what do you wish there was more time and money for pre these situations and post these situations to help with mental health? I love that question because I wish everybody would have in every, you know, the back door of every bathroom stall and on every bathroom wall and in every lunchroom and every break room and on every phone, every place, a little note that says 988, call or text, crisis and suicide lifeline. 988 is a national crisis and suicide, you know, database and system, even for first responders too, for veterans, push one, uh, but that's it. And you can, you can chat uh, you can also do the chat. The chat is 988lifeline.org. But I don't think that we emphasize at all the impact. And and this is where I think it fall. I f- see it fall into place, especially in the corporate world. Continuity of operations is a dollars game. That is, it's not. It's not a game, right? Continuity of operations is the business, and it's very important that at a company get back to quote-unquote normal, whatever that is, that they show confidence that the company is okay, that the business is uh, thriving, and that they're taking care of their people. And so ahead of time, you have to know how to help people. There are massive, massive resources available at the federal level, state and county level, that's where you start, your county and your state, and the FBI has a ton of federal Office of Victim Services, a ton of federal money available uh, to do things like you have somebody who's injured uh, severely in an in a incident in your business, the, there are federal resources available to fly two family members of that intern from you know their home in another part of the country or another country to come in and help support. And that doesn't have to be a burden on the business. It's, a, it's knowing ahead of time what all those resources are. So that's one thing. Get the resources to know what they are because those resources uh, for mental health services, for victim and family services, those will help people recover. And knowing ahead of time that you can call a crisis hotline, you can call a suicide hotline, you can call 988, those are very valuable because even though you want to get the business back to normal, your people are still not back to normal. It takes months. A friend of mine who was uh, very severely injured in a mass shooting 
told me once, uh, it took her nine months to decide whether to go to counseling or not. Nine months. And she was shot three times. She's the most uh, seriously injured survivor of the Virginia Tech shooting. And so in each case, you never you never really know, you know what's going on in somebody's head, but you have to constantly provide them with the resources. And it's very different like for law enforcement, but even from a corporate standpoint, imagine if you have a situation in your corporate uh, front office or in your in your lobby, and then the next day, you ask that employee to go back and work at that desk. You're not thinking about their mental health care. Somebody else should be assigned to that desk, or they should be matched with another person who was less impacted. Did you get that? Everywhere, 988-988-lifeline.org. That's the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And think now, what do your policies say? What have you trained on to do during and crucially after an event that might have had mental health consequences for your employees. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Stephen Cremando, Matt Bradley, and Katherine Schweit. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.